From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show that covers the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Air Force will push the announcement of the location of the new Space Command to early 2021 after it considers some new entrants in the competition for the command's permanent headquarters. Installations can nominate themselves, according to an Air Force statement Friday. Military.com reports the original date for a decision was this summer. The Marine Corps will elevate the commander of its Training and Education Command to a three-star as it increases its emphasis on learning. The Corps released its first doctrinal publication on learning ever. USNI News reports TCOM Commander Major General William Mullen says the new emphasis on learning is because Marines will need an intellectual edge over adversaries. The Army will use the Air Force's Kessel Run software factory model for fast deployment of software applications. The Army's Chief Technology Officer William Robinson says the service needs soldiers with skills in using cloud-based applications, especially data analytics. FCW reports Robinson says the opening of the Army's new Enterprise Cloud Office will facilitate the model. The Defense Department Inspector General's office will examine the agency's response to coronavirus. The IG has 10 new reports in the works about the virus's impact, procedures in place, and the allocation of relief funding. Leo Fitzharris is the Strategy and Planning Innovations Director at the DOD Inspector General's office. Leo, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's the overarching framework? What's the strategy for the oversight plan that your office has for looking at the way DOD has dealt with coronavirus? Well, good morning, uh, and thanks for having me. Uh, the COVID-19 oversight plan lists the projects um, that we intend to uh, conduct in response to uh, coronavirus and the CARES Act. Um, those audits and investigations um, are areas that we believe are uh, pose risk to the department and the challenge and challenge their ability to conduct their mission. It also includes uh, our approach to criminal investigations, where the Defense Criminal Investigative Service is working closely with DOD and other federal law enforcement agencies to share best practices as it relates to detecting, deterring, and investigating criminal uh, fraud. You list four major areas that you're going to look at, requirements, contractor vetting, oversight and surveillance, and financial management. Are there different risks involved in those four areas because of the CARES Act and the coronavirus response more broadly than would be in any other kind of operation, in any other kind of response to something, or just in day-to-day -day operations in the Pentagon, Leo? So we developed the COVID-19 oversight plan in a very similar manner that we do to our annual oversight planning. It's a risk-based approach, uh, looking at where the money is allocated in the Department of Defense, as well as other factors that relate to uh, prior oversight coverage and so forth. It's important that the DODIG focus on the auditability of the CARES Act funding to ensure that the Department of Defense um, timely and appropriately uh, authorized use of the CARES Act supplemental funding. The, it, the, the word audit always triggers uh, the, an interest in the audit uh, overall. What's the intersection between the ongoing effort for the Defense Department to audit its books and the money that's being poured into the department because of the CARES Act? Or is there an intersection between those two, Leo? 
I think they uh, reinforce each other. Um, the recommendations are made in the agency financial uh, audit or financial statement audit uh, involve you know the traceability and auditability of funds, how things are being used, and are is the department getting what it's paying for in terms of uh, cost, quantity, and quality. You're calling attention to two pieces of work that you would like all of the stakeholders uh, that you wrote uh, to about what the work that you're about to do. One of them is a report on contingency contracting, a framework for reform, that's uh, from 2015, and uh, fraud detection resources for auditors. Why are those two resources important enough that you, your office wanted to call attention to them to all the people that are involved with this, Leo? I think as it became evident, the uh, implications of uh, COVID-19 and the potential impact to the Department of Defense, um, we began uh, looking at how could we gather best practices and lessons learned from our prior oversight work, which would help the department ensure that they are able to uh, appropriately and, and quickly um, apply the supplemental funding that Congress allocated to the Department of Defense. Is there anything about the nature of the CARES Act or the coronavirus response more broadly that can or allows you to change the timeline under which you're able to do your work? Is there any urgency because of the CARES Act that would require you or enable you maybe to work more quickly or will your timelines for these investigations stay the same as they would in other circumstances? So the DODIG is always striving to provide timely and relevant oversight. The CARES Act does provide um, some uh, different authorities in terms of contracting. I think our uh, report that we sent out related to best practices and, and areas that DOD contracting officers and others can look at as it relates to um, contracts, developing recommend or uh, solid requirements and, and, and ensuring that schedules are put in place and that quality assurance and surveillance plans are executed uh, is important. Have you completed or, or gotten far, uh, far down the road so far on any work related to COVID-19, or is this work still in the, in the beginning stages? So as you previously mentioned, we've, uh, we have planned uh, over 15 so far um, audits and evaluations that relate to the CARES Act and the DOD's response to coronavirus. Um, again, these are in areas that impact acquisition, supply chain management, healthcare, and most importantly, maintaining um, the welfare and well-being of our service members. Our plan is not static. It will continue to evolve as risks and uh, emerge and other challenges facing the department uh, come to bear, as well as, as we uh, begin to look at additional data sets. Um, which will inform our future projects. We have about 30 seconds left, Leo, and you kind of anticipated where I wanted to go. What are the flags that you'll watch for to determine if you need to now also look at something else that you didn't anticipate at the beginning as you formed this framework originally? So uh, we plan to update the plan on a monthly basis, um, and that will include uh, looking at our ongoing work, and looking at where the data is taking us to ensure that we are making uh, our best effort to ensure that the DOD 
is expending the CARES Act fund in accordance with uh, the intent of the funding. Leo Fitzharris of the Defense Department Inspector General's Office, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Up next, cutting the department's dependence on China. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the urgency behind finding new sources for rare earth metals. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Defense Department will ask Congress for help to buy rare earth materials from new and different sources. Right now, the top source for rare earth minerals is China. Sharon Burke is senior advisor at New America. She's former assistant secretary of defense for operational energy plans and programs. Sharon, thanks for coming back on the program. How did the United States go from being a net producer of rare earth minerals to a net importer? Well, largely China got good at this and we let them do it. So they came in with low cost production. They cultivated other producers around the world. They specialized in, uh, in separating the minerals. They also don't worry about environmental quality, all those kinds of things. And we just could not compete. And we prize efficiency and short-term profitability over the long-term stability and economic security in our, in our economy. And now we've got a situation where we're overwhelmingly dependent on one country for these really important materials. So this sounds like the same kinds of advantages that uh, China has used in lots of other areas. Do they also use the same kinds of price manipulation and uh, capital supplementation, uh, subsidization in rare earth minerals that they do in steel and a lot of other things that they sell around the world? They do, although on some level, first of all, they, they didn't take this from us, we gave it to them. This is an advantage we gave them that they didn't just take. But they do in this case have an actual resource advantage. They have good concentrations of this mineral. So they did play to their strengths. You can't blame them for that. But they also came in with low-cost production and, and manipulated world markets and prices in order to gain this advantage. This has been a very deliberate policy of theirs for a long time. And again, our private sector fueled this. It's not like something they did to us. We did this to ourselves. Last time you were on the program, we talked about the uses of rare earth minerals. What, where else could we get this stuff? Where are, could we completely eliminate China from the pipeline or are we always going to need to rely on them for this stuff that's so important to a lot of the high-tech equipment the department uses? So rare earths are not actually rare. They're all over the world. The problem is they're not always in concentrations that you can uh, economically mine and produce. But they are in a lot of places. They're here in the United States, and they're in Australia, they're in Canada, they're in Sweden. Um, so there's a lot of other countries, they're in India for that matter, there are a lot of other countries that we could and should be working with to create a global collaborative to produce these materials. One of the big problems, too, is not just where's the actual mineral, but also, you know, it doesn't come out of the ground ready to use for your smartphone. You have to actually produce it, which involves crushing it, heating it, bathing it in acid. It's a very dirty, very messy process. And that is also where the Chinese have a very strong comparative advantage. So to fix the supply chain is not as simple as just finding a place to dig. 
No, I, I understand that, and, and what you're saying makes perfect sense, but you listed five nations there that it strikes me are all our very good allies. These are all Australia, Canada, India, Sweden, and of course ourselves, all five countries that we have very good relationships with, and with the exception of maybe Australia, have a vested interest in uh, the support of a, an American or an American-based supply chain at the expense of China. Is, is, that, a, is that a fair yeah, read on I my part? It's a fair read, but I wouldn't say so much that they have an interest in our in investing in us at the expense of China. We have an interest together in creating a competitive market and, and in you know sustaining a competitive market. All of those countries have that in common. We all want to have uh, market-based economies, but the way that we've been allowing it to develop over the last couple of decades is clearly not working for us. The answer shouldn't be to just retreat behind and throw up really high walls, protective economic walls, and aim for self-sufficiency. That, that ship has sailed. We can't do that in a competitive way, and we don't have to do that in a competitive way. We can work with all of these partners and countries to create a mutually advantageous industry here. So one vision for that is in legislation that Senator Cruz, uh, Senator Ted Cruz from Texas has filed that would try to establish a U.S.-based supply chain. Does that vision in that legislation comport with what you're talking about, Sharon? Does that, do, do they look the same? Uh, I'm aware of Senator Cruz's proposal. And, you know, I think in general, all of these proposals, it's good that we have this moment where we're confronting the issue and we're, we're trying to understand how to fix it. I have not read his entire bill, but from what I have read about it, what concerns me is this. We don't want to say we're going to be self-sufficient. We can do this all by ourselves. Uh, there's a reason that our industry wasn't competitive. There are m multiple reasons. Um, some of them are things we can fix and some aren't. But just doing self-sufficiency, we can't be competitive alone. We need to be competitive together. So diversification is one of the answers. Yes, we should have some more at home, but we should also be working with our partners. Innovation is another part of the answer. One of the reasons we don't have a lot of separation and production facilities in the United States is because they're dirty. But we should be investing in making this process better, in making the mining better and at making the production processes better. That is one of the ways we're going to outcompete, is not just by throwing a fit, but by being better and by collaborating with others. So if the answer in his, it, it appears that one of the answers in his legislation is you know, self-sufficiency, let's just do it at home. I think that's a false choice. So we're better when we work together. Um, and, you know, it may be also that we need to talk about how we surgically level the playing field. So if the Chinese are getting a huge cost advantage because they're, they don't care about the environment of their country or the health of their workers, you know, rather than just throwing out tariffs that can destroy our own economy in the process, we should be much more targeted about where we're, where, where we're imposing border taxes for environmental costs, for example. Sharon Burke, thanks very much as always. It's great to see you. Great to see you too. Thank you. Up next, using commercial technology at the Pentagon. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to think outside the box and choose the best partners. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. Defense Department leaders have more opportunities now to use commercial technology thanks to provisions in the CARES Act. But those provisions may not go far enough. Megan Metzger is founder and CEO of Decode, writing about choosing the right commercial technology for government in Defense News. Megan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Where are the gaps now? The Defense Department has tried for years to be more cognizant of how to bring commercial technology into its portfolios. Mm -hmm. What are the, where do the gaps remain in your view? Sure. So, you know, private sector technology, I think one of the reasons they look for it is, you know, that market as far outpaced the government market and the DOD because just technology changes so rapidly. So there's a couple of different things that I think the department really needs to look at in order to make the best use of it. First, it's actually having both sides better understand how to interact with each other. Um, you know, on the technology side, I think finding the technology is easy, but understanding how to vet that technology is a, one of the bigger challenges, especially in a crisis response environment when you need to move quickly. So understanding how to look at that technology effectively is going to be pretty critical. And then on the other side, on the government side, you have to be prepared to catch the technology. So if you find it, how do we train the government leaders to better understand how to engage effectively with the technology itself? So some examples there, um, Decode's actually running a course around this in June, specifically around how do um, both program and contracting staff find technologies and rethink market research? How do they leverage the you know, the CARES Act, innovative procurement, and even hack the FAR and leverage the existing authorities they have. And then how do they actually um, change the way that they think about solicitation so they don't intentionally block the innovation? And there are some other things that they need to think about as well when it comes to um, lowering the barriers. Do you think the Pentagon is getting better at understanding the importance of sig signaling to private industry, especially to venture, uh, the venture community, what it likes so that the venture community knows where to invest and how to help these startups grow in in the way the Pentagon needs them to grow, Megan? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I think Decode started about five years ago, and at that point, um, just going out to the Valley was enough, um, you know, at least as far as they thought, and we've come a really long way. Uh, Decode itself is on its 15th accelerator focused on bringing emerging tech into the government. And even in that program, you know, I think the first programs we had 50 government leaders involved, and now we have several hundred from across all sorts of departments and every service within the DOD. So you see AFWorks, you see Softworks, um, Naval X just stood up. There's a lot of pockets of innovation, but even beyond those innovation groups, we see um, they're rethinking how to do SBIR and get a little bit more creative to lower that barrier. Um, you know, AFWorks and I would say Af, um, Air Force Ventures has been a great example of showing the industry even around you know vertical takeoff and lift um, and landing where, hey, we need you, we're open for business, and there's still lessons to be learned and all the kinks aren't worked out, but um, I think they're starting to understand that importance. You know, it's critical. We can't ignore it anymore, um, not because now it's a competitive advantage both for us as a country um, and for the technology companies to you be involved with the government. You mentioned a couple of these accelerator cells a moment ago, Megan, and I mentioned earlier in the program yeah. The, Air, uh, the Army is going to use the Kessel Run model in the Air Force as, uh, it, yep. for software development. Do you worry that there are maybe That's too right. many pockets of innovation that the Pentagon's traditionally not been great at having its pockets of whatever talking to each other? 
Is it possible that can be a concern here? Sure. I think you know the government, DOD in particular, we all, we tend to recreate things. So you know when we looked at bringing technology forward around predictive maintenance, for example, we see a lot of different. Um, groups tackling the exact same challenge. I think Decode's in an interesting position because we work across all the innovation hubs. So we've seen these different groups um, kind of stand up and take on their own form and try things a little bit different from each other. And in the more recent past, they're starting to come together and saying, wait, time out, we should probably collaborate a little bit more effectively. You see that with the SBIR, for example, um, the Air Force started the revamp to leverage SBIR to bring in dual use technologies. Now the Navy and the Army are starting to play together and kind of consolidate a little bit of their efforts. Um, but you know, as long as these groups start understanding and learning from each other, you know, engaging with groups like ourselves that are a little bit more cross-cutting than I think, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. That's where some of the innovation will come from if we if we learn from each other. You write in your piece in Defense News about reforms that you'd like to see to the SBIR program. What are those, Megan? What what needs to change so that those small businesses can help the Pentagon more? Sure. Well, one of the biggest um, barriers right now was actually addressed in the last NDAA. So it allows for venture-backed firms. Um, so these high growth tech companies often bring on venture capital money. And what that will do is dilute the ownership stake for the uh, original owners of the company or whoever's in charge. And right now, the way that the SBR is written, if you have venture backing over 50%, you're not allowed to actually bid on an SBIR contract. And you know we've accelerated 100 technology companies. I would say if they actually implement the NDAA um, you know, guidance around lifting that 50%, we'll have at least 50 more companies that will be able to go after the SBIR. And these companies are already in other programs and they're really having a tremendous impact. So I think it would be a game changer for that to go through. Megan Metzger, great piece in Defense News. Thanks for coming on to talk about it. Appreciate it. Yep, thanks so much. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You can get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rowe. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.